Hello and welcome to season two of Can Architecture Fix This? A podcast where we explore challenging design questions through stories and conversations with expert guests. I'm your host, Rebecca Sheberg, coming to you from White Architecture Studio in Oslo, Norway. Last season, we brought you stories about design where water was a central theme. This season, we're shifting our focus to the theme transformation. How can architecture, landscape architecture, and design in general contribute to positive change? This is, of course, a base intention with every project we take on, but how we deliver on those ambitions is often a surprising journey. We're kicking off this first episode by asking the question, can architecture fix dying seascapes? We've invited Ellen T. Sørensen and Elie Rinde to share a story about working with the underwater landscape in the inner Oslofjord, where multiple environmental factors, as well as some pretty bad human practices, have created poor conditions for sea life. But their work and research is showing how these environments can be transformed back into healthy biotopes. We hope you'll enjoy the story. Ellen T. Sørensen is a landscape architect and artist. Her work focuses on the development of well-functioning marine neighborhoods in urban sea areas. Eli Rinde is a marine biologist and a senior research scientist at NIVA, the Norwegian Institute for Water Research. Together, Ellen and Eli are combining art and science to find methods for transforming the seabed from an inhospitable environment back into a healthy habitat. Ellen and Eli, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's super nice to be talking to you too. Um, before we get into your research and work, I would first love to hear each of your stories about why you decided to focus on the underwater world. And I understand that you, Ellie, are an experienced diver and you, Ellen, snorkeled along the Oslo Fjord for your field work during your PhD. So what drew each of you to the water and can you remember your first experience? Um, we can start with you, Ellie. Thank you. Uh, I grew up uh, close to the sea and uh, close to a beautiful white sandy beach. Mm. And I always loved to play in the ocean. And I also participated in the local swimming club for many years. Yeah. And then I especially loved to swim below the water. And when I started at the university, uh, I soon took the diving license and I also started with underwater rugby so I've been playing a lot (laughs) within the sea and then it was uh, obvious when I started to study biology that I choose uh, marine biology. Mm, Absolutely and you Ellen what drew you to the water? Um, Well that started much later uh, when I was um, actually engaging in an art project uh, and I developed a work uh, called the Geyers And we addressed the enormous and huge uh, problem with plastics in the ocean and how humans' plastic consummation has impacted the ocean. Mm. And in in the process of developing that artwork, I I came in touch with the the environment and and also marine scientists and toxicologists Mm -hmm. and environmental activists like surfers and diving community. Yeah. that were also operating in the Oslo Fjord. And, and that is actually how I became aware of the life below water and, and, and I got under the surface. And, and this experience totally changed my approach as a landscape architect 
And that is what made me start questioning our profession Mm -hmm. and and how we, our traditional practice uh, is actually ignoring the ocean. Yes. And and, um, so that was kind of how I got under the surface. But besides that, I'm also born and raised by the Oslo Fjord and I have been playing on the beaches of the Oslo Fjord all my life. Mm. But my relation to the ocean was in a way superficial and and I think that is also say something about the education both at the the, the chil- for children and also uh, at the landscape architectural school <laughs> mm, yeah no I can see yeah. that okay so today we are asking can architecture fix dying seascapes and the, the underwater landscapes in general and Ellen your PhD is completed and you held your defense in the form of digital storytelling in April of last year 2021 your dissertation was entitled multi-species neighborhoods in urban sea areas can you please walk us through the premise of your dissertation well i can try uh, i i i always say that i set out to unify the landscape between land and sea mm-hmm. and and both in people's imagination but also in in concrete designs or how we build into the sea and, and how we can do that in more inclusive ways and, and how uh, we can open up the urban intertidal in people's consciousness and literally make space for marine life. Mm. So that was kind of my starting point. And, and I wanted to see and explore possible ways of improving coastal communities through urban development processes where life below water is taken into consideration and is taken seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and also I, I wondered, I started out like asking, what does it take to get people to invest in this invisible world? Because, you know, I experienced it as an invisible landscape and ignored space. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this led me to a kind of landscape activist approach. I went out into the field and I spoke to and tested my ideas on developers, on architects, landscape architects, environmental activists, Mm -hmm. and local people. And I had the whole uh, Fjord city of Oslo as my case area. Mm -hmm. And as I worked, it was growing. So I I, I really talked to loads of people uh, about these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And it became quite complex. And, and this was also the conceptual basis for the innovations that we have done with the landscape architecture mm. and, and that we now continue to develop for a more commercial market. Mm. And I think that what I found is that what we need is to, we need a huge attitude change. Yes. <laughs> and this is especially connected to, to that we have started to address multi-species placemaking and design. Mm. And, and that we have to overcome the disconnect between life below surface and nature in general. Hmm. And you took the position in your dissertation that you have to spend time in these landscapes and underwater um, to better understand the marine environments and the life, to experience and learn from that nature before we can find solutions. So you did this by snorkeling along the Oslo Fjord and documenting what you saw. Can you explain a little bit about what you found by spending time in that environment? Yes, uh, I can. I can say that more uh, theoretically. Or I was very much inspired by Rachel Carson, mm-hmm. and and she has this um, 
she writes about the ethics of wonder. And, and I was working with this idea uh, about uh, letting myself emerge and letting myself become curious and astonished by, by what I experienced in the intertidal. And, and in order to do this, you, I had to, to stay there a lot. And, and because I also start, started as a landlubber, I started with no knowledge about marine biology. Mm. I knew a lot about water, uh, like uh, sweet water treatment and urban water uh, treatment and urban ecology. But for me, it was a new, new world opening up. And I felt that the only way that I can know this world by myself, with my body, with my own eyes and see it, I had to go <laughs> undersea myself. And, and also, of course, the documenting with the, I documented with a small GoPro camera. Yeah. And this was also a way for me to be able to look back at the landscape and, and, and get to know the landscape. Mm -hmm. Because also when you are, uh, sometimes when you are undersea, the water is quite dark. Yeah. And actually, it is better seen recorded uh, afterwards. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so this was a method uh, for me to get to know the landscape and to get to know the marine organisms. Mm. And then I could also go back and look it up uh, on the internet and sort of become acquainted with the different species and mm. and how they behaved and and how they actually look and and this is this is of course, similar to how you work as a landscape architect, uh, architect with vegetation on land. I mean, you have to know mm -hmm. how the, the, the trees grow. You have to know how they develop. You have to know how they, when they are small and how they are when they are mature, you know, you have to know succession. So all these things are similar mm -hmm. uh, knowledge that you learn when you are, are become a landscape architect you don't learn about marine species no exactly yeah so so now uh, uh, we are uh, trying to uh, maybe make a course that that the landscape architect and and urban planners can <laughs> use this method oh that's a fantastic method yeah. yeah um as you were doing this did you find out that there was a particularly good part of the fjord or a particularly lifeless part of the fjord uh, yes, I, I mean, I was uh, doing field work uh, uh, in like Hoya, which is close to Drebak, a bit out in the inner Oslo Fjord. And I was also doing a lot of field work uh, um, by the urban islands in the Oslo, inner Oslo Fjord, mm -hmm. and also along the, the urbanized uh, shoreline. And of course, um, the urbanized shoreline is a rather sad experience it's yes. uh, the divers call it a desert oh, okay. uh, and a, this kind of wasteland there is very it's the life is very reduced if you compare it to the icelands but actually the icelands for me they they were more more life and more um, variety mm -hmm. but but i think early is better to explain the situation for the oslofjord than me yeah. 
Okay, so Ellie, let's talk about the fjord. What's going on under the water? (laughs) Well, I think think also we should mention that uh, we did this um, survey along the urban uh, shoreline that, uh, in fact, it's at least at the old structures that had been there for a while and that had a kind of structure at it, the old uh, building blocks. Building blocks and the granite uh, docks, for instance. Then we found surprisingly uh, not a high species diversity, but more than I had uh, imagined. Mm. But uh, the problem that Elin talks about with the... uh, with the condition, the ecological state, this, this is uh, very bad in uh, in uh, the inner Oslo fjord, and it is also bad in the whole the whole fjord okay. itself. So it's not just the inner part, but it's also a growing concern that we have um, an increasing amount of these turf algae, mm-hmm. and, and that is linked to both uh, that we get warmer climate. Mm-hmm. But also, of course, uh, nutrient loadings into the fjord. Mm. So, but it also it has a complex uh, uh, relationships. It can also be uh, linked to overfishing, for example, that you changes the balance in the food webs. Mm-hmm. So, so it is uh, it is a com- complicated uh, uh, causes of yeah. the. But it's, of course, it is related to the increasing human population yeah. around the fjord yeah. and climate change. Mm. And I and think that for me, I, I just like to add that for me, the, I think the biggest shock in a sense is that we talk so much about blue-green infrastructure and land and how important it, it is for, for humans. And, uh, and then when you come you go into the water, for instance, in Frommenichilen, mm-hmm. it, is, it is a horrible experience. Okay. And it is, uh, and I think that is kind of an eye-opener mm. that, that we want to make parks and infrastructure for, for enjoying uh, urban nature on land, mm-hmm. but we neglect the nature that is undersea Mm-hmm. And 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 the, and and so some of the experience I had along the inner the inner harbor, uh, the landscape, the more human or Anthropocene landscape, it was shocking actually. Mm-hmm. And when you say horrible, you, you what what does horrible look like? I think also the, that it's so um, if if it have if we had have had the same conditions on land. We wouldn't have accepted it because yeah. it's uh, it's just uh, mud and no life mm. and uh, just a lot of uh, garbage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's not just that it's uh, it's a desert, but it's also more like um, a lot of uh, yeah trash, trash. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, and we made we had the lecture earlier and I together, and we made a comparison uh, with the 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 area outside the opera house like the undersea that could be an undersea park mm-hmm. it is actually bigger than the than the park around the castle mm. and you can just imagine that this castle park was a mud hole yeah yeah and when you walked there you just sunk into the mud yeah and it was gray and there was nothing there mm. and 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 nobody would have accepted it no no 
it would be a catastrophe. Oh, it would be a, a, a scandal. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but because, as you have said, this is a rather invisible landscape. That's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, it's covered by, for example, in Trondheim with uh, both small boat harbor. Yeah. So it's also covered with the uh, human structures. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's even covered up. Um, yeah. uh, I understand, Ellie. You were Ellen's mentor for her PhD. So I, I would like to hear, what was it like for you to work together with Ellen on this project that's combining art and landscape, architecture and marine research? And have you been involved in similar research endeavors like this or was this a first for you? Uh, this was the first, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think it was both uh, exciting and also challenging mm-hmm. because we had to uh, develop new concepts that combines the different fields and also that was needed to be able to speak the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was also great to look at the marine life in a new way with a more open mind mm-hmm. because I had uh, been looking at it more scientifically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now we had to broaden up a bit. Yeah. And it was very cool to combine my early interest in ceramics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with with the, to, to co-develop these marine houses in technical porcelain at the old factory in Fredrikstad. That was a very uh, inspiring experience. And I also think that has deepened our relationship because we have had to spend time and also <laughs> make these things together. Yeah. Uh, and then let's, let's hop right to that, uh, that question that I wanted to ask you. The two of you together with Ivar Chalmont, he is a 3D expert. You've collaborated um, to create these innovative methods for recreating some structural elements of the underwater landscape that might start to regenerate healthy biotopes and bring back some life to the Oslofjord. So can you tell a little bit about that project and and, uh, marine landscape architecture? Uh, Yeah, as I said, uh, one of my key interests was to transfer the complexity of nature onto the urban form. Mm -hmm. So I was searching for ways to do that all through the PhD. And I and I also like to mention that I had a geological mentor who is a professor emeritus, Johan um, uh, Petter Nystuen mm-hmm. uh, from the University in Oslo. So because together with the marine biologist's uh, input, it's also very important to think about the, the substrate, the geology, and this is uh, the key um, or the basis for this uh, landscape architecture that we study very carefully the local geology, mm-hmm. which is the kind of the, um, the surface where the marine life attaches. Mm-hmm. And then how we can transfer it through new technology, mm-hmm. like photogrammetry and 3D modeling and make structures that we can replace with the the structures that architects make today mm-hmm. uh, and and we find that these structures they are very monotonous yeah uh, they are very they have no they do, do not facilitate for marine life at all mm-hmm. and and actually this apply to land as well mm-hmm. uh, so so um and, and when we were working, when I was working with Ivar Chelmo, who were developing the 3D models and the 3D visualization, it was, of course, very important to all the time talk to Ellie uh, about if, 
this is a viable way to go mm-hmm. so that the design is not kind of a concept that I make as an artist or landscape architect that looks nice or mm-hmm. fancy, but that is actually might work. Yeah. So, so what do these so, things look like? Are they the size of coral? Are they the size of cars? What What are we talking about here? Well, uh, the, the thing is that we, when we try to transfer the, the kind of the structure and texture mm-hmm. from the geology, yeah. uh, that we make them into objects that could be replaced like pillars, like building pillars, like quay fronts. Yeah, I see. Like surfaces of buildings. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, this can be upscaled or it can be make into modular shapes that can be built together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that we make a, a different way of building into the sea that is more uh, in line with what the man- marine organisms are used to through their um, evolution. Yeah, okay. So we talk about it as marine housing. <laughs> yes. And, and, and also in the kind of in the, the field of environmental humanities and in the discussion about more than human care and multispeciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also talk about that. Actually, there is not such a huge problem with making space for other organisms in our built environment, mm-hmm. because we have different, like if we make a pillar that is more friendly towards marine life, mm-hmm. it doesn't really... Um, it is not in the way for our way of using the building. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just makes the building more diverse. Yeah, yeah. Because we don't live on pillars under sea, but blue mussels does. Mm-hmm. They do that. So this is the kind of idea that we just give more space to other organisms in our, our architecture mm. together with our life so that all the species can have a decent life. I see. In well, urban maybe- environments. Yeah. Then maybe we should hop back and uh, and talk about how architects have been practicing the development of of coastal edges. Um, one conclusion that you wrote about after cataloging the conditions of the fjord was that most waterfront housing developments reduce the space and variation, both on the seabed but also in the transition zone between land and water, and that uniform design or the recasting, the coastal hardening, creates these marine wastelands, like you say. So one of the problems that we architects are struggling with is that we seem to have a general gap in our knowledge about what happens below the water surface. Um, And so, like you say, that the housing that we put right on the water's edge, they have to land on pillars that go down into the sea and get anchored into the the rock or or so below the, the sea. But we could do it much better if we design the pillars correctly, if we, if we designed all of the concrete edges, so can we talk a little bit about why coastal hardening is so harmful for marine life and then connect that to what you guys have been have been explaining about marine architecture? Yeah. Well, in what happens when you cast or you recast the coast is that you reduce the diversity fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Not only not only the horizontal uh, edge or you make it more straight and more monotonous but you also destroy the dynamics and the dynamic interaction between the landscape and the and the sea, the water, mm-hmm. the movement. So this is something that we always try to say now that, 
that if you want to make uh, a climate friendly and resilient urban design, mm -hmm. you should actually let the nature dynamics enter the city and, and maybe live out its dynamics in the built environment. That's a much better way to protect. Um, so that is one thing. And the other thing is that when we build, as we have talked about before, uh, by changing the monotonous and the straight and the vertical building techniques into more organic and more varied uh, shapes, mm -hmm. you can welcome uh, other species into the architecture, mm -hmm. both on land and under sea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you want to elaborate. Uh, well, in, in uh, both in... Uh... In, uh, on land and also into the sea, if you have um, a varied uh, habitats, you get more diversity. So yeah. that's a kind yeah. of thing that we want to re, uh, what do you call it, mimic mm -hmm. yeah. our uh, suggestions of, uh, of new structures into the sea. Mm. It has to also, you have to uh, learn from the, how the, natural uh, shoreline and the community is uh, composed and then included into the into the structures mm. so so in in a way it's looking at two things it's it's as you started to say ellen it's the space between zones the, these edge conditions that are not a line they're a whole zone where lots mm. of life can move up and down and in and out so to see the edge condition as a zone not a line and then it's also to understand the importance of architecture, not just as like the building for people, but the architecture actually on other scales, the architecture of the pillar, uh, the architecture of the, the edge as more than the thing that holds up the piece of architecture, but that it is, it is itself a habitat or a potential yes. habitat. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then it's to turn these Anthropocene habitats into more nature-like mm -hmm. habitats. Mm -hmm. And this is necessary in order to, to cope with the nature and climate crisis that we have inflicted upon ourselves. Yes. And also, I, I must say that this work has to be um, cross-disciplinary. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I started out with this knowledge and I knew that I, if I could not complete my PhD, if I didn't become friends with the marine biologists, <laughs> And, and other 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 uh, natural scientists and other disciplines, mm -hmm. and that is also uh, much what the PhD is about: yeah. cross-disciplinary interaction and co-creation. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also important to when that's one of the advices in our guidelines because we have continued to work together uh, with uh, in different projects. And uh, one important first step is to get to know the, the local uh, uh, inhabitants in mm -hmm. the area. So you know with which species uh, you have and what kind of uh, environmental conditions they need to, to thrive, both when they are young and when they also are uh, adult. So you have to think about the whole life cycle and also the whole system so they also include the different um, 
the different. I'm not going to use services. So you know that you have, for example, that uh, some of the um, uh, some of the buildings in um, in Oslo they put up a lot of uh, muscle ropes, but then they didn't think about how to all the dead materials that uh, fall down on the seabed, how that should be treated. And mm. they just, uh, it was overfished. The, the lobsters that established was uh, removed as soon as uh, people became aware of that uh, the lobsters had moved in. <laughs> ah. So so that's something that you have to think about the whole um, community and uh, yeah, to mm. secure that every different uh, different levels in the food webs are uh, taken care of. Yeah, yeah because see. in this case, the lobsters are the janitors. Yes. And yeah. they keep the seabed clean. I see, yeah. And, and if people just start to fish them because they want to eat and drink champagne, <laughs> then you get really bad conditions on the seabed, you know. So this is what, early, when we try to promote, is this kind of neighborhood thinking. Mm. and and system thinking mm. yeah i think that's so interesting because i remember i've been practicing almost 15 years and i remember um up until just a few years ago it was the the focus in planning and and strategic development and architecture was all about people and we thought you know we got to put the people in for it we got to got to make these things for people and over the past few years we've started to notice maybe we weren't even um uh, consciously doing this, but we've started to understand that the protection and the habitat we're creating is for all kinds of life. So the Hovnen Promenaden project that we made 10 years ago was all about people, but the Bergen project is, is about all kinds of life and not yeah. just people. It's, it's extending what we talk about as a neighborhood and what you're talking about also the underwater neighborhood that you can't just remove the janitors or else things die. <laughs> Hmm. But then maybe we could talk a little bit about um, ocean literacy, because I know you, you've both given a lot of thought to ocean literacy in your work. So what advice can either of you give to design professionals, but also the general public about how we can get acquainted with the needs uh, and eventual care of our underwater landscapes? I think uh, the best advice is that you uh, go close to the water and in, into the water and that yeah. you look at it uh, life yourself with a mask mm. and, uh, and the, the shoreline community it is uh, easily available although in urban uh, development you can have a lot of barriers but it's uh, at least um, most places you can come close to the shore and into the sea mm. And also then I think it's important to, to learn to uh, search for the species that you see and then learn about uh, mm. the, how they live. So, Stay curious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I totally agree. And, and uh, I have never been diving in kind of these coral areas in Australia, but I had, I had so much, I so much enjoyed to mm. snorkel. Mm. Even in the Oslo Fjord, <laughs> because it the experience is is fantastic, mm. and and uh, and 
and also being with the waves and looking how everything moves under sea and and you discovered small uh, organisms mm. it is really wonderful it's a wonder so so even in the oslo fjord mm. there is it's, it's very, great mm. to snorkel yes. so i think that's the best advice yeah. go under sea yeah. yeah and but both of you have been involved in something called the oslo fjord school can you say a little bit about that yeah, uh, both Eli and I are one of the many initiators of, of the Oslo Fjord School. And um, it has started, it has sort of grown slowly uh, by people that are very enthusiastic about the fjord and want to do something about it. And, and we have gradually built a kind of hub of people from various um, areas and our mission is to, to work with ocean literacy and, and, and to tell people about how important the ocean is for us and, mm-hmm. and, and what we can do to protect the ocean and also how we can work with young, the younger generation. And, and also we, we are collaborating with Sparrows Oslofjord, which is the free diving uh, um, community. Mm. Uh, located at Ormsund, where also Oslo Fjord School is located right now, uh, by Nedre Bekkelage, um, in Oslo, yeah. south of the central Oslo. Uh, so we do different activities, and we will launch um, nine rules for urban rewilding mm-hmm. based on the Norwegian Mountain Code. Okay. And... and uh, and uh, this is our, actually our most recent um, collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, which is also a, a cross-disciplinary collaboration with Eli as a marine biologist and me and uh, uh, Mats, Gro- Mats Polsru, who is a designer in, in uh, Grow Lab Oslo, and Cecilia Sachs-Ulsen, who is an urban researcher at uh, Oslo Metropolitan University, mm-hmm. and, and many others. So... so uh, this is one example of, of the activities at the Oslo Fjord School. It's both for children, but also to, to promote ocean literacy to grown-ups and also, of course, the, the building uh, and architecture and urban development community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds wonderful. Um, please send us a link whenever that is. Uh, we'll send you an invitation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to come do. and participate. <laughs> yes, please do. Because you know it's an open meeting. Yeah. Because you know, we, we love working with water, we love working on the water's edge, but we know we don't know enough yet. And as you have said, we have to keep talking to lots of different people who know different things. So please do invite us. We will. <laughs> uh, but yeah. then the where we've come to our last question, and that's how we end all of our interviews. The podcast is called Can Architecture Fix This? And today we've been talking about dying seascapes and caring for the underwater landscapes. So um, what can be done to transform the underwater landscape back into a healthy ecosystem? And do you think that architecture can help fix some of those dying seascapes? Or is it too narrow to focus on architecture? And if so, how might you reformulate that? Uh, I think it's the most important thing is uh, that we have to repair the urban deserts that we have already uh, created mm. and also that we have to avoid degradation in when we start new developing projects mm-hmm. and uh, at, uh, and also making 
all of the involved, I'm not sure if it's to call in stakeholders, but all people involved in the planning and in the building process that they become aware of the possibilities and also uh, the need for interdisciplinary cooperation. So, and, and that this is not a very easy and simple task, but that you have to, to uh, test and learn and that you have to modify as, uh, as we learn more how to, to, um, yeah, to make the, the conditions for the marine life uh, better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it has a lot of potential, but it cannot be used uh, by itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe the, that architecture cannot fix it alone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that this has to be a, a process, actually, where knowledge come together. Mm-hmm. And, and also we try to promote that because we lack knowledge about how marine life might develop or redevelop in the urban sea areas, mm-hmm. it is very important to include or to make the urban development process into a, a, a urban living laboratory. So this we try to promote. And this is actually something that the EU uh, Horizon 2020 promotes. So uh, because they, they lack a knowledge about nature-based solutions in urban areas. And, and this is what Elis says also that we, because we need to test, we, know, we have to see the response. We have to learn from the response. We have to adapt. Mm. And and we have to uh, observe this over many years. Yeah. Because when you work with the ecosystems, they respond differently over the years. Sometimes they give good response and thrive, but the next year they might die out and then they come back. And and you cannot, there is no um, a quick fix. Right. And, and, and it's nothing that you can predict. That is why this to have this process in mind is so important and that it doesn't necessarily look great the first years, for instance. Yeah. And I think also because we have these changes ongoing, the climate changes. Yeah. You have to anticipate that it will be dynamic and uh, that it will change a lot. Yeah. And then maybe the way that we normally or the traditional way of urban planning, which is very linear, for instance, it doesn't work. That's the story this week. Thank you all for listening. If you would like to learn more about Ellen and Ellie's work, you can find information online at www.fjordskola.no and www.urbantav.no. You can also find Ellen's videos of the underwater landscapes in the Inner Oslo Fjord on YouTube under her channel, Ellen T. Sorensen. Can Architecture Fix This is produced by Ingjard Sandvang Klevan and White Architected in Oslo. Sophia Benson is our Managing Director. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you have a minute, please give us a rating. You can also find us on Instagram under the handle White Architector Oslo or visit our website at www.whitearchitecture.com. Join us next week when we speak with Michael Speaks from Syracuse University and hear how architectural education has been transforming and how it just might be able to fix some of the challenges that education is facing in general. I'm Rebecca Sheberg, and this was Can Architecture Fix This? from White Architected.